If you would, open your Bibles to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Charity, welcome back home. I mean, it's good to see you. It's been a little bit, right? A minute or three? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Ephesians, the third chapter. And we're going to begin reading the the 14th uh, verse through the end of the chapter, which is the prayer. But we'll we'll look at the rest of that throughout the course uh, of the message as well. The series that we are in is Imagining the Kingdom. I mean, because here's the reality. We are called to live under the reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ. But the truth is, we can't live there if we have not first imagined what it would be like. If we have not even first conceived of what might, that might look like. Good to see you, Zodi. <laughs> um, and so, we've been walking through different uh, sections of Scripture that are going to help us imagine the, the kingdom, if you will, in, in that reality. And, and so, the title for this particular uh, message, and you're, if you like alliteration, you're going to love this one. This is the most alliteration I've ever had in this sermon, like in my life. I mean, if that were a goal, and it probably isn't, but if it were, I would get an award for this one today. But um, prayer for power to perform the promise is the title for the message. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and the, the funny thing is, is it came easy. It was like the first time I, you know, tried it, it was all there. So there you have it. Let's read beginning in verse 14. For this reason, Paul writes, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, (coughs) as we come to Your Word, open our hearts and minds to hear Your Spirit speaking to us and do a work in us by Your Holy Spirit to change us, to transform us, to empower us, to perform the Gospel promise that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Smoke signals, primitive though they are, work great for communicating very simple things, such as when to gather, when war has begun, or when it has ceased. The form of communication, to be sure, limits the message, right? I mean, there's only so many things you can do. It would not be so good if you were being taught how to do heart surgery or how to land a plane in the event that the pilot had died to use smoke signals for communication. Um, Morse code would be a slight improvement, but it's not likely that either the surgery or the landing would end well if those were the forms of communication chosen. Simple is not always better, though of course it's often preferred. A simple way that Ephesians has been framed is that chapters 1 through 3 communicate the indicative, the things that God says are true about you and me. And that chapters 4 through 
6 communicate the imperative, the things that we are commanded to do in response to that. This is who you are, and then this is how you should therefore live. I've probably used that form of simplifying the book of Ephesians, um, if you will, a a smoke signal form of of communicating it simply. And the idea is that in doing so, in, in informing us what is true about us, the indicative, that it is infused with grace because, as the logic goes, if you know who you are and what God has done for you, you can then live out that truth and live right. Now, parents are pretty sure that this logic doesn't work. As long as you live in our house, you are not going to do whatever it is they just got through doing because you are a Caesar. We don't do that. That's not how we live. That's not how we think. We aren't going to act that way. There's an indicative, and it's very clear. But, of course, you know, they go right back to doing the same thing. Aren't we prone to doing the things we know we shouldn't do? Clearly, I think we need more grace than to merely inform us of truth about what God has done. We need something other than that. And the question I want to ask today is, what is that something other that we need if we're going to actually see change in how we live? Well, we don't need to move far beyond the smoke signal level of communication to see that Paul does not move straight from the indicative to the imperative. In Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul indeed tells us what God has done in adopting us, transforming us from children characterized by disobedience and rage into sons and daughters, and he's broken down the wall of, walls of hostility between us. That's all indicative in a in manner of speaking. Now, of course, along with that, he's done a good bit of praying already. <clears throat> and to be sure, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will tell us how to live. But Ephesians 3, our text today, is neither indicative nor imperative. In chapter 3, Paul prays for a work of the Spirit in our hearts to transform us, to enable us. In fact, I think we should ask the question, why is this letter to the Ephesians so filled with prayer? Because it isn't just suddenly in chapter 3. We we have extensively more prayer in chapter 1 than you find in any of his other letters. And then chapter 3, he's right back to it before you know what's happened on. And then, of course, chapter 6, he's asking for prayer on top of that. Why is he praying so much? James K.A. Smith, in You Are What You Love, writes this. He says, Worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and longings so that our cultural endeavors are indexed toward God and His kingdom. Worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and longings so that our cultural endeavors are indexed toward God and His kingdom. He argues that change doesn't take place by merely having right beliefs. As long as we can think the right thing, we're going to do the right thing. That we don't change actually until our desires, our wants, our loves change. You are what you love is the title of his book, and That's the point that he's driving home. We can't long for what we can't imagine. If we're going to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven and see a foretaste of Christ's kingdom manifest among us, we're going to have to imagine such a world until we long for it. 
And when our desires have so changed that we long for it, we'll begin to live in it. Our gathered worship and prayer is an imagination station, to borrow from Smith, for just that. When he says, worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and longings, he would include prayer as worship. He is speaking contextually about corporate worship, including corporate prayer. It is formative for our loves. It is formative for our longings. And our text today, by the way, is a corporate prayer. Now, that might not be so obvious because we might take that section, as I often do, and pray it individually by myself for the church, and that's fine. But it is, in fact, a corporate prayer. Consider this. It's a letter written and therefore read to a congregation. They did not have a copy at home on their nightstand either. It didn't show up in their inbox and their email. The only way they heard this prayer, that it was even being prayed, is if they gathered together with the church. And they heard it being read to the congregation. And Paul is telling them that he is praying for them. And the you, he speaks of them in you know, the, the second person to, you know, I pray that you, it's plural. So, they are hearing the prayer as a gathered congregation in Ephesus. Why is it important, to to borrow from Smith again, why is it important to incubate our loves and our longings? Why why do we need to incubate our loves and our longings, longings? Because, as he goes on to say, Jesus, he doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? What do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question that Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Discipleship, we might say, he goes on to say, all right, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Did you know you can change what you love, that you can change what you want? And discipleship is a process whereby we change our desires into those to to desire the things of God. But it's not just something we do. There's somebody, somebody else involved in that process. The transformation of our heart is the primary difference between the Old Covenant and the New. Ezekiel may describe it most succinctly. He says it this way, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Paul describes that to the Philippians when he says, It is God who works in you both to will. To want to, to desire, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The difference between the old and new covenants is boiled down to the transformation of our hearts, our desires, our wants. It's why Smith suggests that the core of Christian discipleship is the formation of our desires. It's why gospel formation is our first missional priority. Not because it's the end-all be-all, but because it's the path to everything else. The formation of our desires is a work of the Spirit 
that takes place in answer to our prayer and worship. I'm going to say that again. The formation of our desires is a work of the Spirit that takes place in answer to our prayer and worship, in response to our prayer and worship, in the context of our prayer and worship. And this also might explain why Pentecostal or charismatic ministries are often so effective at seeing lives changed. They don't end the sermon asking what to do as much as what is God doing in me. They pause to pray and seek the Spirit's work in their lives. And Paul does that right in the middle of this letter to the Ephesians. He moves from the indicative, if we could describe the first two chapters that way, and it's certainly a description. He moves from the great truths about our adoption in chapters 1 and 2 to prayer for the Spirit's work before moving into instruction. So we're going to explore this chapter under three headings. Partakers of the promise, performance of the promise, and prayer for power to perform the promise. Partakers of the promise, performance of the promise, and prayer for power to perform the promise. If you want to remember the outline of this sermon, just come up with P words. You'll probably hit it. Just, you'll get there. It'll be real easy. So, Okay, uh, heading number one, partakers of the promise. I want to read the first six verses of this chapter, which precede, of course, where we began earlier. Paul, coming out of chapter 2, and if I can bring your mind back to the wonderful truths of chapter 2, Uh, and we'll talk about them in a moment, this is what he's coming out of when he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh wait, I have another thought. He now stops mid-sentence, doesn't even have a verb added to his subject, and he jumps into another thought, verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given uh, to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And Paul's audience went, because that was cataclysmic. We miss it more often than not. We just read through that because we're just kind of used to what it says. But that was cataclysmic. Paul begins in verse 1 introducing his prayer, but stops mid-sentence interrupting himself. He interrupts himself at a particular point. And I think it is probably worth asking, what was it that caused him to jump out of that sentence into this other thought? Well, notice where he interrupts himself. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh, that brings up a thought. Paul the Jew. This might be an important thing to to, to, to give a little more background on. I've just spent an entire chapter, chapter 2, talking about how the, the wall of hostility between the two have been broken down. But let me just say it another way to talk about my role in this because this is huge. You may wonder how we got to this place. So he says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, this mystery. And then he goes on and then he states it plainly in verse 6. 
Paul's describing the great theme of how the gospel is changing everything. <coughs> Just as the sin of Adam resulted, the sin of Adam changed everything, to be sure. It changed everything. And immediately coming out of that, you, of course, you have the friction between him and Eve that you see already in chapter 3 and the, the problems that will proceed out of that. But chapter 4, we have the Cain and Abel story. You have brother killing brother. Am I my brother's keeper? And then you don't have to wait very long because by the time you get to chapter 6, God regrets having made mankind because of what? Because of the Hamas, the violence between humans. The violence between humans. And so he finds a man who is faithful, Noah, and he grabs him and saves him and his family despite themselves. And he... He, he rescues them in the ark, you know the story, and he wipes out the rest of the earth. But then it doesn't take long again by chapter 11. Of course, we don't know how many thousands of years tr- go between these events. We're just given bits and pieces of this you know, epic of history. But we get to uh, Babel, and empires have started to bring people together, and well, there's some good things with empires. Nothing will be impossible with, to them. But of course, it won't be done for good. It'll be done with the same violence that has characterized human nature from the beginning. And so, right after God spreads everybody out at Babel, he chooses a man, Abram. And what does he say? He says, through you, all nations on earth, all ethne will be blessed. All Gentiles, if you want, that's the same word translated Gentiles, will be blessed. And that's where the story begins that is being finished in in Christ, that mystery that was hidden. Christ has broken down the walls of hostility and he's reuniting all peoples into one by the one spirit. Pentecost is, if if you go over to chapter 2 in the book of Acts, you'll note that the list of peoples in in, in, in that story that are being brought back together, that are hearing the same gospel message, it's like a, an undoing of Babel. An undoing of Babel. God is at work in the world by His Spirit to unite people in Christ. It's a mystery because in the Old Testament it's often shrouded just enough that one can't see it, or at least not see it clearly. I, sometimes I'll be going to meet somebody, maybe for coffee or maybe at their house or wherever it might be, that we're going to meet them, and I'll, I'll arrive there and suddenly realize as I'm getting out of my car that I haven't looked in a mirror in about four hours. And of course, you know, I might have been spending time reading where my hand's up here rubbing my hair and, you know, whatever, and I suddenly realize I better look in the mirror, but I've already shut the car, and I really don't want to have, you know, open it back up, sit down on the thing, pull down the mirror. So I start looking for a place where the lighting's just right, that the, the, the window reflection will work as a mirror, and if not, I've got a little chrome strip between the, the back and the front window that, that could work as a mirror. Now, it's never very clear. But I do my best to see just to make sure that I'm roughly presentable. And I, I never walk away overly confident that I am. But I'm fairly sure that it won't be embarrassing. Right? I mean, it'll be somewhere in between those two. And that's how reading the Old Testament can sometimes feel. I mean, while it's clear that the Gentiles figure into this, you, you don't really get the full picture of exactly what that's going to look like or how that's going to happen. But when we get to the New Testament, that that veil is taken away, to borrow from Paul, 
Or to use my analogy, the mirror becomes clearer. The glass becomes clearer, even though it's still not perfectly clear. Verse 6 states the mystery of Christ plainly. Through the gospel, through the announcement of the Messiah's universal reign. That's what a gospel is. The announcement of a king's reign. So, through the announcement of the Messiah's universal reign, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together of the promise in Christ Jesus. The, the, the nations of the world, the Goim, uh, Dave pointed out to me this week, last week I pointed, I, I was talking about ethne, and I said in Psalm 2, that's the same word, and he said, but wasn't the Old Testament written in Hebrew? Said, yes, Dave. That is, to be clear, the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint that I was referring to. So the, the ethne, the goim, those are the nations. But those nations are in Christ Jesus, heirs together with this one nation that God chose Israel. They are brought back together. Now, at one level we can clearly say that there are no first class versus second class citizens in the kingdom. There are no first-class versus second-class citizens in the kingdom. Whether Jew or Gentile, you're one in Christ Jesus. But I think it's hard for us to feel the emotional upheaval that would have produ- th- this would have produced in the original audience. This is not merely information. Paul is talking to, about two groups of people that were hostile to each other. They were filled with hatred toward each other. They were all, as Paul put it up in verse 3, children of rage. They were all children of rage. Now, we, we looked at that last week. We'll look at it again maybe next week or the week after, depending on how far we get in the text. The hatred of the Jews toward the nations certainly had roots in a long history of violence from oppressive nations to them. At present, Rome. In history, many empires. Our current political rage as a nation has nothing on them. They were in many ways enslaved by the Romans. It was both economic and religious. It was an us-against-them conflict of the worst kind. Well, Gentiles hated Jews equally as much, if not greater, as exposed in the first half of the last century in our own world. Hatred between these peoples has existed for a long time. On an emotional level, what Paul is proposing that the gospel does is more unlikely, more unlikely than if he had proposed that Democrats and Republicans would have one political convention next year to choose one candidate together, and it would be a love fest. I mean, we've got to feel that to understand what Paul is saying here. We've got to get that because this wasn't just a theological truth that he was putting out there. Consider this. No, he was saying, hey, you know all those people you hate and you think they're out to kill you and destroy your way of life? Christ has made you one with them. Oh, those people. Yep, those are the ones. At the root of this hatred is the human trait that is common to us all. A trait making us by nature, as Paul describes it above, children of rage. A modern term might be xenophobia. 
fear of the stranger, fear of the other. We just are naturally inclined not to like people who think and act and look differently than us. In 2.19, chapter 2.19, Paul says to the Gentile believers, you are no longer strangers. And that word for strangers is xenoi. It's where we get xenophobia, fear. Add phobia to the end of it. Strain, fear of strangers. NASA understands how prone we are to identifying with a group and pitting ourselves against other groups as human beings. Candidates for becoming astronauts are put through rigorous psychological testing in pursuit of people who are unlikely to snap under stress and who are good at working with others. It's 75 times easier to get into Harvard than into NASA's astronaut program. I mean, if you just look at the number of applicants to how many are picked, 70 times easy, five times easier to get into Harvard than into NASA. That, that program, one class of 11 astronauts, just to give you an example, was picked from a pool of 18,353 candidates that applied. After being picked, they then go through extensive training in conflict management. Now, you're not just picking the general public. You're picking people that are least likely to get into conflict. Psychologically tested. 11 out of over 18,000. You getting the picture here? <clears throat> then they go through extensive training in conflict management and communication under stress. They are drilled on the fact that isolation the isolation of a mission will create tensions and conflicts with the ground crew between the crew and the ground and ground control because just because they are the other they know this going into it no group is better equipped to resist conflict than an astronaut and do you know what happens on just about every single mission even simulated missions conflict You can almost guarantee conflict will happen in any mission between the crew and the ground con and crown control. It's the classic us versus them conflict. The ground thinks that the crew are a bunch of prima donnas, go figure, and the crew thinks that ground control has no idea what they're going through because they've never done this. We all like having someone to hate on, and it's almost always some other group. We identify with one group so that we can hate on the other group. From the NASA archives of the Gemini 4 mission, where the first spacewalk was done by the man that I'm going to cite here in a moment, Ed White, you can hear a recording from the 1965 conversation between Ed White, the pilot, and ground control on, while the mission is on, in, in, going on. The conversation begins with White relaying the spacecraft's coordinates. White says, the pilot, Zero, one, three, four, zero, zero, niner. Ground control. Okay, Ed, let me correct you on that. It's zero, one, three, four, zero, zero, nine. White says, that's what I said, flight. Ground. Oh, negative. I, I believe you read zero, one, three, four, zero, zero, niner. White says, okay, I read it right the first time. Ground says, okay, you read the right numbers. You didn't read it with the right uh, beat. 
the right what? Ground says, you didn't read it with the right beat. (laughs) You're getting the point? It could not be more absurd. It illustrates our willingness to argue, to ultimately fight over some of the pettiest things one can imagine. Now, of course, those married understand the pettiness of many conflicts. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Often, if someone asks you the next day what you were arguing about, you don't even remember. That wasn't the point, was it? What about more important things? How do we do with people we don't trust? Whom we fear? Regardless of why we fear them, how do we do with them? Jesus loved the people crucifying him. He had reasons to fear them. Let's just put that on the record. You know, it needs to be on the table as we're having this discussion. Remember the impact of the messaging from the radio station in Rwanda that we talked about last week led to one of the worst genocides in human history. I mean, it's just horrible. But but how did it, what, what impacted it significantly is radio messaging that went into these villages doing what? Talking about how those Tutsi people are out to get you and they're wanting to destroy you. So that what? So that eventually you'll kill them to save yourself. Listen, politicians understand how to control people through that kind of fear. And don't think it's just in Rwanda that happens here. If we listen to the rhetoric of the rulers of this age, the messaging of the ruler of the authority of the air, the messaging of the ruler of the spirit and wind that is blowing and inflating the sails of the sons of disobedience, we will respond out of fear which is never out of love, because love casts out fear, because there is no fear in love, right? Paul is exulting in the glory of the gospel that has torn down those walls of hostility and made Jews and Gentiles together heirs of the promise given to Abraham through Christ Jesus, chapter 2. But now we must live that way. Now we must live that way. That leads to part two. Don't worry, these next two points are much shorter than the first one. If you're worried. Performance of the promise. Let's read verses 7 through 13. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of the Lord's, all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now, the driving point of this paragraph, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The central point of that paragraph The thing that we must catch is that in verse 10, as it says, having transformed people from hostility to unity and love, the church must now perform the promise. Like actors on a cosmic stage, displaying the wisdom of God and unifying people like this. That the church should live out such unity and love that the cosmic entities, the spiritual beings in heavenly places would watch and go, wow, that plan is amazing, God. Like, who'd have thunk it? 
My question is, is are they saying that today? I'll let you be the judge. If all we had was human ability to put our hope in, I would not be encouraged by this. We need to practice listening without speaking in return to people who see things differently than us. We need to read books by Christians who have different political persuasions than our own. Not to be persuaded, but to do what we talked about last week that John Adams finally figured out that he needed to do with his former and finally restored friend Thomas Jefferson. Spend a lifetime understanding him. When we set out to understand people, that is the foundation of love. And we may actually discover that they aren't the devils we made them out to be. My experience tells me that some of us aren't prone to do this. Some of us are so attached to our demonization of the other that we won't be inclined to do this. We must learn that Seeking to understand people is more important than getting them to align with our views on secondary matters. Or we'll never get anywhere in living out this unity that Paul puts right at the heart of the gospel. And yes, to be clear, he's talking about unity within the church. But if we stop a moment and think, why are we supposed to show unity in the church to one another? Because God, when we were the sons of disobedience, when we were against him... He displayed this kind of love to us. So yes, it is true that this is between the church, but not in exclusion of loving the world. As a demonstration of the same kind of love that God has to the world. And that's a huge difference. A vitally huge difference. The stage for this performance of the promise of a peaceable kingdom is in the realm of spiritual beings. We don't have to drum up an audience. Like, oh, we need to get a lot of people so they can see it. No, no, there's already an audience. We're already on display in the realm of spiritual beings. You may recall Hebrews 12.1 that talks about this marathon of faith. where we, the, the great cloud of witnesses. That, that it, it takes our minds into the realm of imagination to see what we can't see. That the saints that have gone before are watching us run the race. Well, here, it's a different picture. It's all the spiritual authorities, the demons, the angels, everything going on in the spiritual realm that we can't see. They're watching us as on a stage, performing or displaying God's wisdom as we walk out this unity. Isn't that a glorious picture? What are they seeing? Is it God's plan of unity or is it God's plan of breaking down walls of hostility? Is it working or... Are we showing his wisdom? Or might, might God seem foolish to them at times? That leads to our third point, prayer for power to perform the promise. Verse 14 through 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. For this reason, 
Verse 1 started that way, and then he interrupts himself, so he picks right back up in verse 14. For this reason, he's going right back to that sentence he never finished. The reason is all that chapter 2 elucidated, and we can say 1 and 2 to be sure. The transformation of people from hostility to living as adopted children in one house in such a way that the God of love can use us as his dwelling place. And it is for this reason, the very purpose of God, that Paul gets on his knees to pray for them. Why? Because they will need the power of the Spirit to live this as a reality. It is not some sort of automatic reality. Well, as long as you think the right thought, you're going to live the right way. Well, how's that working for you? We need that power if we're going to walk as sons and daughters of God in the family business of reconciliation. So far, Ephesians has described God's glorious plan to adopt both Jews and Gentiles in Christ Jesus and has prayed that we might, by the Spirit, know this glorious hope to which He has called us. We have been reminded that we, whether Jews or Gentiles, were sons of disobedience, children of rage, and yet God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, adopted us, and made us alive in Christ, rescuing us from that war. He has broken down the walls of hostility and made us one. People who were as hateful of each other as any people on earth have ever been, and that it is in this unified people who have made peace in Christ Jesus that God dwells in His temple, even as we are joined together. For this reason, Paul prays. Paul calls on the abundant storehouses of heaven. The, the earth may be the work of his hands and the heavens his handiwork, but this will require the deepest resources that heaven has to offer. To do what? To give us the strength we need so that Christ will dwell in our hearts. Not my heart, not your heart, but our hearts. This unity that is such that Christ dwells among us in our hearts. That we being rooted and grounded in love would have the power or the ability to, literally, take hold of the love of Christ. The first, def, the first dictionary definition of that word, the first lexicon d- definition of that word, is to make something one's own. So in other words, that we would make the love of Christ our own. The etymology is to take hold of, to grasp onto. But it, it, Paul uses it everywhere to, to mean to make it our own, or to attain it. What is the, what is what it is in its width and length and height and breadth? Now, a lot of our translations say comprehend or grasp or understand. Um, that's fine. It could mean that metaphorically. Um, it's not without basis at all. It's like the least used way the word is ever used, but could be used that way. Paul never uses it that way anywhere else. And, and I think how he uses it elsewhere should be how we should at least consider it here, which is to make it our own. See, I don't think we're going to see change by understanding the love of Christ better. Well, if I just understood it better. Oh, no, I think we understand it well enough. I think the problem lays in not making it our own, not taking hold of it, not grabbing onto it. This isn't an educational process that he's praying for. This is a spiritual encounter that he's praying for, that we would actually take it in as the love that we live by. That we would know what surpasses knowledge. 
You want to know what's unknowable? That's a bit of an oxymoron, to be sure. But it refers to what you can't learn in a textbook. You, you can't get this awareness, this knowledge of the love of Christ by studying it more. You can only obtain this as you take hold of the love of Christ. When you make Christ's love in all its dimensions yours, when you begin to live it, you'll begin to know it in a way that you can never know it until you live it. The most important aspect of our Christian faith cannot be learned from a sermon. Sorry, that's my job, but still. I mean, one day I'm going to be fired forever, and all preachers will be, because we will no longer need preachers. So my job security in the eternal sense is really bad. It's really bad. I'm trying to find some other trade I can do in the new heaven and the new earth, just for the record. The most important aspect of our Christian faith cannot be learned from a sermon or from a book or even a Bible study. It can only be learned when, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we set out to turn this theory of Christ making peace between us and those who are xenoi, strangers, to us, into practiced reality. Into practiced reality. That's when we learn the love of Christ. Now listen. Christians ought to be the most peaceable people on earth. Given the gospel that we embrace, it's the basis for that statement. (laughs) Given the gospel that we embrace, a God who loved his enemies and died for them, Christians ought to be the most peaceable people on earth. Jesus died for his enemies. I mean, he's broken down the dividing wall between us and God, but now also between us and others. And he's done so to demonstrate God's reconciling nature to the world. The church of the third century believed that, quote, when peace was absent, when there was injustice among members or relationships were broken, the church's worship was null and void. The offering to God, which is our prayer and thanksgiving, they wrote, shall not be heard or accepted if there is unresolved conflict. That God does not hear the prayer of those who bear anger towards their brother. And listen, that truth doesn't just disappear because we all went down the street and got in another building. We may not worship with believers who think differently than us, but we're still called to live in a united way and to love them in the same way. There are reasons to, well, one is just the size of churches requires that we have multiple congregations everywhere. And there are reasons to worship in different places, but they are not justification for not loving our neighbor, who is our brother or sister in Christ. In at least the churches of Syria in the third century, and could have been beyond this, but of course we don't have writings from every area. But every Sunday at the time of the peace greeting, or the the kiss of peace, as it's often called, the overseer of that congregation would urge a deacon by crying out, is there anyone who, the, the deacon would cry out, is there anyone who maintains anger with his neighbor? And if the members had relationships that were seriously strained, the deacons, whom the overseer charged to find out about that conflict and misbehavior, would urge the parties to... Uh, go to the overseer 
and, and who, who, who proclaims peace. That's how they described what he did. That was his function, to proclaim peace. You know, it's funny, the book of Ephesians talks about the gospel being the proclamation of peace. And so, he would help them make peace. And if those grievances were not so deep-seated, they would resolve it right there in the meeting so that they could go on and receive communion. But if their grievances were deep-seated, a process of hearings would begin the next Tuesday. I guess they took off Mondays too, I don't know. But the bishop listened to the accuser as well as the accused and evaluated their conduct and actions. And if possible, they always wanted to resolve it by the next Sunday so they could pronounce to the church that it had been resolved. I'm not suggesting we figure out how to do all that. Here's what I'm suggesting. They saw unity to be such a priority that it became a part of their worship service. The reconciliation would begin and end at the worship service. Why? Because they understood the vital importance of unity in the body. And if there's conflict between any two members, it's not just affecting them, it's affecting all of us. They believed their prayers would be hindered by such lack of reconciliation. Are our prayers being hindered? Is our worship being accepted? Or is there hostility in play? We must take our call to unity to be of utmost importance. To live as if the dividing walls of hostility have been broken down and that we are made one in Christ and God dwells among us in that unity. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have set the world stage to display the cosmic stage, to display the glory of the gospel by teaching peoples that were hostile to one another to live in unity. And a simple argument from the greater to the lesser, Lord, if, if even this distinction that's made by the old covenant between one nation and the rest can be obliterated by the cross so that they come together, how much more all the lesser distinctions that we have set up in our world? How much more? Lord, I don't know that we can ever fully grasp the emotional impact of these statements by Paul on his original audience, those receiving that letter. But I think we can grasp the areas of our own lives where we are prone to an us against them, a fear of the other and what they might do to us. We are apt to set up constructs of those we don't understand that are not entirely generous and loving. Lord, break down those walls of hostility in our own lives. Father, we pray that out of the storehouses of your grace, the riches of heaven, that you would grant that we 
by your Spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, having been rooted and grounded in the love of the gospel, would take hold of that love, that we would make it our own in all its width and breadth and height and depth, that we would know that which is unknowable, that which surpasses knowledge, that we would know it because we've experienced it in our lives together, and that the world stage would look on, the cosmic entities would see the wisdom of our God as we walk out the love of Christ. In Jesus' name, make it so, Lord, make it so. Amen.